0: Welcome back to Eurodollar University, everybody. My name is Emil Kalinowski. I'm joined by Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. And last episode was a big one. We talked about the Eurodollar futures inversion, the curve inverted, and how that's happened before and that it doesn't augur anything good for the global economy. We're going to check back in to see where the curve is today and check in on bond markets around the world and just do an update. Jeff will be reading off of your blog post from a few days ago, Eurodollar Futures, There Be Landmines, December 4th, 2021, posted at Alhambra Investments. And Jeff, where do we start out? I suppose you start out by telling us that once the inversion happens, we shouldn't expect it to keep inverting, to keep doing something. There was just sort of a trigger, and then we'll check back in later, but... You said that it turned into a a running tally.
1: Yeah, usually, or at least by historical experience, in the initial first phases of inversion, there's just a little tiny couple basis points of upside down, and then it stays that way for quite some time. And honestly, it seems like, oh, it inverted. Now what? You know, after a couple months later, maybe it doesn't even look like it's moved all that much. In one sense, it kind of gets really boring from this point. We had the inversion, and then let's come back to it in a couple months and see what's happened. That's really what we were expecting, is that you get this little tiny inversion, and it kind of sticks around as little tiny for a while and not really much interesting to add to it once it's happened.
0: And that you could easily dismiss it. Then you can say, oh, it's just a basis point and it hasn't changed for months, so we can ignore it.
1: But yeah, yeah. who cares? It's just this little tiny thing mm-hmm. it's, and it hasn't changed. So nothing else has changed.
0: It reminds me a little bit about of economic growth and nonlinear growth. They're both upward sloping. These money curves, uh, return on money and economic activity. It's supposed to be upward sloping. And so even if it is a tiny bit negative, that's way off trend. It's just as we're humans and we have these monkey brains, it's easier for us to recognize the zero line, whether something's positive or negative. And that's what we latch onto. But we're missing maybe the exponential nature of money and economic activity that there should be an upward sloping trend and falling off the trend is the key worry. And by day three, which was a while ago, and you update us where we are now, you said, hey, there's still more activity. It's not done. This little dip of the toe into the water. Where's the euro dollar curve now? Has it undressed completely? Is it skinny dipping in the pool?
1: It's changing. You know, it's always distorting and twisting because markets are dynamic places and they change all the time. And it actually changed a little bit more last week than I was expecting. I figured a basis point, maybe two basis point at the most. But yet the inversion expanded both in depth as well as in reach. It got all the way up into the, I believe, the June of 2024 contracts is where it started, reaching all the way into the 2026s. And at the most inverted depth, got up to about four and a half, five basis points during some of the days last week. You know, it, it inverted in that little tiny place to start with. And then it immediately got quite a bit bigger. And then that's kind of where it's been over the last week or so up to today, where the inversion is really kind of centered on the December 2024 contract. It's now four and a half basis points. It reaches into maybe December of 2026 intraday. So you got quite a bit of inversion here, certainly more than I was expecting when I initially wrote that. But it's still, you know, it's still not this huge, absolutely massive thing. And what you just said, Emil, is absolutely right. It's not the fact that... You know, okay, it inverts and then it keeps inverting, keeps inverting, keeps inverting, gets more and more and more. It, the fact that it's inverted at it even just a single or even a half basis point at all is what really should be concerning because you're right. Every day that the curve is not upward sloping is a day that's been lost to whatever it is the curve is predicting. That's another day where the market is saying, well, things that could have gone right or whatever we were worried about, that's gone now. But that's not what we're seeing happening. We're seeing that every day that goes on, the market is getting more and more confident that whatever is, whatever it's afraid of or whatever it's projecting out in the future, it's still there. And with the curve staying inverted all this time, what it's saying is that, yeah, not only is it still there, just by the mere fact of it sticking around through time, the market is saying we believe it's going to be there and, and the probability of whatever it is that's going to go wrong Rises every day that the curve doesn't straighten itself out and go back to an upward slope. You just said whatever it is out there. And earlier you mentioned some specific dates, December
0: 2024, if I remember correctly. Another article, an essay that you wrote at Real Clear Markets on the 3rd of December titled, An Inversion That Will Likely End the Inflation Narrative. You go back in time to the 2018 inversion and you ask the audience, the readers, did the euro dollar futures curve? predict the coronavirus infection global pandemic because when it inverted it was predicting middle of 2020 look out guys look right over there well what did you tell the readership that about the
1: that's predictive kind of what it nature? looks like right i mean june of 2018 we got this inversion in the euro dollar futures curve and it was centered around the june 2020 contract so Amazing. if we take <laughs> these contracts literally it kind of sounds like The euro dollar futures market was predicting something bad would happen in the middle of 2020. And this is 2018. So two years ahead of time, long before anybody heard of coronavirus or SARS or anything that happened in Wuhan, the market seemed to be saying, we know something's going to happen in June of 2020. If we take the curve literally, that was, but, you know, we, we can't take these curves literally. And that's not really what happened. Instead, the market was saying in 2018, in the middle of 2018, that there was anxiety there was deflationary forces there were breakdowns in the monetary system and the way the technical parts of the curve work we talked about you know the whites and the reds the greens and the blues the greens and that part of the curve is really where the market has more freedom so to speak to price in and hedge against you know non specific future worries so june of 2020 just happened to be that part on the curve where in june of 2018 the market started to project its current worries, what it could see in the monetary system collateral scarcity and shortage and project out into the future that, okay, at some point, this stuff is all going to add up into something bad. Not specifically June of 2020 or the middle of 2020. That's just where it happened to fall on the curve. And as we know, it was actually much closer in time than that, than it turned out to be, because we would see things start to really fall off within just a couple months in October, and November of 2018. And of course, by 2019, the rate hikes were done, and by July of 2019 there were rate cuts so the market wasn't predicting necessarily something would go wrong in 2020 just that there was some nonspecific unpredictable or unknowable point which all of these bad things that were happening in June of 2020 would finally break the system down create an inflection in the global economy as well as monetary policy and lead to all sorts of bad outcomes which is what happened
0: and ladies and gentlemen Jeff just a moment ago referred to the whites and the greens and the reds and is not referring to Christmas ties. It's a technical description of the euro dollar contracts, groups of them as we move forward through time. And you'll have to see the previous episode. But basically, the early ones, they're reacting to what the Federal Reserve is doing because it offers money like alternatives. And so it has to reflect what the Federal Reserve is doing right now. But later on down the curve, it's beginning to interpret Economic activity, levels of inflation, what it believes the Federal Reserve will have to do because of the wider economy. So I guess bringing it forward to today, same principle applies, right, Jeff? The 2024, that's not it, right? We're not saying free and clear sailing until 2024. We're just saying uh, that's technically when it's inverting and maybe it'll invert more later. We'll see. Or maybe it'll revert back to an upward sloping. But for now, it's just signaling a non-literal warning about the future. Yeah,
1: if if we take the curve literally, then it sounds like the market is saying sometime in 2025, maybe something goes wrong. And okay, okay, who cares, right? That's that's several years down the road. It's not something we should actually be concerned about. But as I said, we don't take these curves literally. The market is not literally pricing trouble in 2025. That just happens to be where the curve is breaking down into inversion. And again, it's not where it's inverted, but the fact that it's inverted at all is telling us that the market is perceiving some nonspecific future period when things start to go wrong. And it's interpreting what's going on today and saying that, we okay, yeah, today there's lots of stuff to be worried about. We don't have any specific concerns that, hey, tomorrow something's going to be wrong. But just balance of probabilities, all the stuff that is going wrong, the monetary system breaking down, collateral scarcity, same kind of stuff as we saw in 2018, rising dollar, yield curves, all that, everything. Triple R. The market is saying we have all of these issues today, balance of probabilities at some point in the future, these are going to add up to all the things that they added up to in 2019, which was an economy going the wrong way, monetary policy going the wrong way, inflation going the wrong way, everything going the wrong way. It's just that we're not quite there yet where the market is saying this is imminent. This is an immediate danger for now. It's just that the probabilities are balancing in the wrong direction. They're just not overwhelmingly balanced in that direction.
0: So in the beginning of the article, you tell us all that and you bring to our attention that the euro dollar futures curve has started to invert a little bit more than you thought day after day and since then it's stabilized. And then you segue to another series of curves yield curves and that's the u.s treasury bond market as well as japanese and german bonds can we talk about what we're seeing in the u.s treasury market i suppose we're seeing something similar if somewhat behind euro dollar futures right it's flattening it's heading towards what might be an inversion maybe or did i put words yeah. in your mouth Flattening is the concern.
1: <laughs> you go ahead. You can put words in my mouth all you want. That's fine. What we're saying is that, you know, it's not just one thing or another. It's not just a little bit of inversion. It's not just literal inversion. It's This is just our starting point where we're seeing something significant happen in euro dollar futures. And then we look at it and say, OK, we've got this inversion in euro dollar futures. Is this an isolated signal? Is a big one anyway? Is this the only market signal that's sending off the same kind of pessimism, skepticism, deflationary potential, that kind of thing. And of course, the answer is always no, because these markets usually work in tandem. And so there's all sorts of corroborative evidence all across the global bond market beyond just strictly euro dollar futures, which is suggesting the same sort of rising deflationary non-growth potential. You know, something's not right today in the balance of probabilities moving forward. Those whatever's not right today is going to continue to be not right tomorrow. And eventually, if it goes long enough, then we start getting into some of the worst outcomes, some of the wrong types of outcomes that are not inflation, they're not economic growth, they're not prosperity around the rest of the world. In fact, it's the same stuff that we've seen repeatedly time and time again. And the timing matches up too. You know, The euro dollar futures curve before it became inverted on December 1st, it really started to flatten out noticeably going back to late October. So late October shows up not just in Eurodollar futures flatness, but also in the U.S. Treasury curve, for example. The nominal 10-year interest rate, the nominal 10-year Treasury yield, it peaked around in the most recent peak, uh, I believe it was October 21st, which matches the Eurodollar futures curve perfectly. Ever since then, we've had more flattening in the U.S. Treasury curve, as well as modestly lower nominal rates, especially at the longer end, again, matching the Eurodollar futures curve, as well as all these other parts of the the global bond market, too. And
0: those two other parts that we're going to talk about right now, just briefly, is the uh, German bonds, 10-year, and the Japanese government bonds, also the 10-year, and also October 26th and October 22nd.
1: Yeah, same time frame, late October, global bonds synchronized. Mm. Something changed where the market started saying, okay, you know, we had a little bit of an upsurge in backup in interest rates around the world. In August, September, and October, which, as we talked about previously, there's some kind of seasonality there that's you know, interest rates usually rise. Maybe that's all that was. But even if it wasn't, maybe if the markets were, hey, it was a sort of a relief sell-off that Delta COVID was beyond behind us, maybe things were going in the right direction. Then all of a sudden late October hits and you get this globally synchronized skepticism. You get the Euro dollar futures curve, you get the dollar rising in exchange value, you get the US Treasury curve. Nominal rates falling, JGB rates falling, that curve flattening, the German curve flattening, even the Greek curve flattening. You have global bond markets saying since October that there's more deflationary potential, more pessimism. And don't forget during this this particular six, what is that, almost a month and a half now, we've seen inflation indices accelerate wildly. In the United States, the CPI got up to the highest in 30 years but yet we still see all of these curves around the world together in unison saying deflationary potential, not inflationary potential. And again, you know, going back to October, this is not Omicron. It's not the next wave of the uh, coronavirus. It's something much deeper, even if we don't know specifically what it is. I mean, we can guess there's something going on in the global marketplace. And it's really not just since October either. Because we've been talking about this, Emil, since when? I mean, Fedwire. March. Yeah, it goes all the way back to February and March. So we have, you know, nine months, nine solid months of growing skepticism. And as we've been talking about constantly, this series of escalating deflationary warnings, one after another, after another, after another. No matter what happens, it's just a constant stream of them and they get bigger and bigger as we go.
0: You know, it's not only those countries we mentioned, but just looking at it, the United Kingdom, Australia, Canada, France, Switzerland, their bond markets are also, since October, heading the wrong way, rising in price. You just mentioned escalating warnings. Final thing, it's not in your article, but you wrote about it recently. It's the triple R. That's just, we've talked about it before, but out of China, another reduction in their required reserve ratio, which should sound like maybe it's stimulus, but really it just coincides, as we've seen historically, with just another warning. Hey, we're seeing something and we're concerned.
1: Yeah, it's another one of those misunderstood things where if, if you read a, a mainstream media article about the RRR, what it'll say is that, oh, good, the Chinese have flooded the, the Chinese system with more RMB because they've allowed banks they've, to unlock some of their reserves and use them. But as we know, looking back, especially historically speaking, that's not what ends up happening. The Chinese cut the RRR in an attempt to offset what is already a deflationary wave, usually an external one that's being registered in China because of these Euro dollar problems, the external dollar problem that becomes an internal RMB problem that Chinese authorities try their best to offset with these RRR cuts. So what ends up happening is exactly what you just said, Emil. The RRR cuts are not actually stimulus. They're consistent with another escalating warning where the Chinese are saying things are going the wrong way. So, hey, look out, we're going to do this. We're going to do this RRR cuts again. So in my mind, in my analysis, and I think you probably agree with me to put words in your mouth, Emil, is that I don't think there's any coincidence that we have December 1st Eurodollar futures curve inverts, which is a big signal that things are going in the wrong direction. And then mere days later, this this past Sunday night, the Chinese say second RRR cut of the year, which is another consistent warning that the global system, the global monetary system, financial system, as well as global economy are starting to really balance and tilt in the wrong direction. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's slowing down. And for anyone that Go skiing or snowboarding, the slower you go, if you hit any sort of little bump, you can get knocked over. I'm sure the global economy is the same way. Jeff, I'm gonna to segue to part B. Is there any final notes you wanted to share on this general topic before we go?
1: Just keep an eye on the Eurodollar futures curve, but don't be surprised if it gets really boring from here, from here on for a little while. Maybe it doesn't move all that much, but as you said in the beginning in a nonlinear world where everything is supposed to be one way, the the more the amount of time it's not that way, the, more, the amount of time it's even a tiny bit inverted is a bad sign.
0: Well, what's not boring is the employment situation in the United States. That's what we're going to talk about in part two. And for those of you who are outside of the United States, well, of course, employment corresponds very closely with consumption. And the United States is the biggest consumer in the world. So it's a big story for the whole world as to what's happening with the employment and the labor force in the United States. We're going to talk about it next. Welcome to Udall University. We're recording this on December 9th, the day that initial jobless claims slumped to a 52 year low in the United States. According to Trading Economics, the jobless claims in the U.S. dropped by 43,000 from the previous period to 184,000 in the week ending December 4th, the lowest since early September 1969 and below market expectations of 215,000. This means that this is a level consistent with healthy labor market conditions, as demand for labor remains strong amid the ongoing economic recovery, and as many employers seek to retain workers. Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners, and I, Emil Kalinowski, we're going to talk about that in today's episode of Eurodollar University. Jeff, we're going to use your article at Alhambra Investments It was titled A Global Jolts in July as our springboard to talk about the situation in the United States, the employment situation. And the jolts numbers are really, really, really good. The Well, at least one part of them, the job openings, maybe not a record high, but for October, they were still near ridiculous all-time highs. Great news. I
1: think. Yeah. And I think it goes along with what you just said with jobless claims. We have ultra low level of those, which means, which at least suggests that the the amount of workers being involuntarily laid off or fired is incredibly low. At the same time, the job openings rate, which is basically the headline of the Jolt series at 11 million, suggests that, you know, again, labor shortage, companies can't get enough workers. So The two seem to be very consistent with the idea that the U.S. economic system, therefore its labor market, are not just healthy, they're on fire. It's things we haven't seen in a generation across the board, which, again, indicates on the one hand, the economy is doing well, maybe too well, and that this is going to turn out to be the inflationary background behind what many people are expecting is a repeat of the 1970s. And so you've got a graph here and
0: it shows this unbelievable spike in job openings. Incredible. And then hires, not as high, but still pretty high. But this is just the absolute number. It's not adjusted for the growth in the population, which you do on our next graph. And both of the lines here, both hires and openings are relatively high. It's better than a stick in the eye or a punch to the left kidney is what I'm trying to say. Great, great. But you do draw our attention and it's in the title of the article. Yeah, uh, this sort of stalled out. You know, are we, am I being greedy, Jeff? I mean, it's stalled
1: (laughs) out at a super high level, but. That's the point. Yes, you're not being. We should be seeing more hires, and that's really the point here. Is that you know before this year, job openings peaked, I think, in 2018 at around not not even seven million or somewhere around six point something million. We're talking 11 million job openings, which suggests, as as you hear in any mainstream media article, that the economy is just simply on fire. There's such a traumatic labor shortage, we can't get Americans to work that companies are just. They're putting out all sorts of job opening advertisements all over the Internet, trying to get people to, to work. But at the same time, they're not hiring <laughs> at nearly the same pay. In fact, hiring is, relatively speaking, lackluster. When you adjust for population, as you were just alluding to, hiring in October, which is the latest data for Joe's, so it's one month further behind than the payroll report. But the latest hiring numbers from October weren't really that different from, say, something like the middle 2000s which wasn't that great of a labor market. So if we got job openings at an epic, historical, biblical high, why isn't the rate of hiring following along at least somewhat closely? But they're actually in almost two different extremes. Job openings are way up there. Well, as you said, hires aren't, it's not a sharp stick in the eye. It's not something awful. But it's not really all that good either. And the question is, what is really going on here? Why do we have two very almost outright conflicting data points here? Companies say they want workers, but yet they're not actually hiring workers.
0: And you can see that in your initial graph, Jeff. You can see how before 2008, there was a relationship. They were following each other perfectly fine. It wasn't always one to one. There was some space between them. Fine. And we see we could see that space again between hires and openings. After 2008 until 2011, but we can dismiss it, right? We we can say it doesn't have to be perfectly following each other. But then as you circle a 2014 euro dollar squeeze number three, 2018, they start to diverge even more than in 2014. In 2018, they diverge even more. That's the fourth euro dollar squeeze. And now we're in 2021. It's just unrelated. It's it's there's something broken
1: Right. Something is not right here. And it's not just this year. We've seen it happen repeatedly where we get into these reflationary periods. Job openings do one thing. The rate of hires do something else. Everybody follows job openings and says, like the unemployment rate, this must be the real economy when all the other data says, no, it's actually moribund. It's more like the rate of hires, the lackluster rate of hires. And so consistently cycle after cycle after cycle now Job openings go up for reasons that have never really been explained. We can we can speculate and I think we can make some reasonable guesses about what's really going on here, but we don't actually have the data to say this is what's really happening in job openings or this is what's going on in hires. But at least with the hiring parts of JOLTS, we have all sorts of corroborative data, including the turnover rate in JOLTS and how that translates into the headline establishment survey or the current employment statistics. The Current Employment Survey of the major payroll statistics would suggest, at least you know, setting aside the difference between job openings and hires right now. What has the economy been doing over the last several months? So even if we take job openings at its face value and say yes, demand for labor is skyrocketing, at least it's no longer skyrocketing. As you mentioned earlier, the rate of job openings—it wasn't actually a record high in October, even though it was 11 million. It was a record high back in July. And really, the rate of job openings peaked or at least began to peak or at least stopped accelerating back in June. So from June, July, August, September, now October, we've seen job openings incredibly high, but not really going any higher. Maybe they had nowhere. I mean, maybe that's the most they could absolutely ever get to. You know, maybe this is sort of the way of job openings telling us that, okay, yeah, we're at an incredible pace for those but it's not more incredible over the last six months. Something maybe has changed here.
0: A moment ago, you mentioned the turnover rate, and I'd like you to tell the audience what that is and if it has something to do with quits. And Jeff, I have a question for you. You know, previously, before the plague, when people quit their jobs, that sounded positive because you would assume that they've got a better job they're going to. Uh, But I'm a little worried that the quits number which is very, very high right now, might not be conveying just the purely positive. I've got another job narrative, or implicit assumption that we have about it that maybe it has something to do with the mandates and the medicine that you have to take and the vaccines. And, you know, again, just like with openings, we don't have the data. We can't ask these people, well, did you quit because you've got a better job or because you don't want to submit to something?
1: What do you think of yeah, that that's a possibility, too? And that gets into the what the turnover behind the labor market numbers. And I would also add that there's also the possibility that people were, you know, as the economy was the last stages of reopening, the final stages of reopening in the middle of this year where lockdowns were removed in some certain states in the United States, where workers went back to work with the promise that, hey, you know, employers, we're not really going to pay you much, but we we expect the economy is going to pick up because everybody says it's going to pick up. And so as, as it does, you know, come work for us. We can't really pay you much today, but we'll, we'll make sure we make it worth your while down the road. But then we get to a couple of months later and things really haven't changed. And all of a sudden workers say, I came back to work for essentially nothing. Maybe I'm just, it's not worth it. Maybe it's not worth it working it, it, either way. But you're right. There's, We don't really know why, but over the last several months, going back to around June, people have been quitting at an epic rate. The level of quits and jolts got up to above 4.3 million, almost 4.4 million, which is far higher than anything we've ever seen. So something is creating this negative turnover in the labor market, combined with the fact that companies aren't actually hiring much, especially going back to June. Again, the rate of hires peaked in June, as did the the acceleration of job openings. So since June, hiring activities come down a bit. Quitting rates have gone up a bit. Layoffs and discharges have been basically the same. So we're seeing weaker headline payroll numbers where payroll actual net growth, net turnover, net positive turnover has shrunk month after month after month, almost in a consistent straight line basis. So that we get to the November payroll report, which is one month further beyond the latest jolts. Remember the last payroll report last week, which was enormously disappointing it at barely 200,000, which suggests that maybe the labor market, whatever's causing it, the labor market overall has been softening for the last almost six months, five months now. That's the key, ladies and gentlemen, June, June, June. It's been some time
0: where we've seen economic activity stalling. We've been talking about the capital markets stalling since March. You know, they hit a high, went down little bit of a rebound, and now they're going down again. You look back through March, you would say they've stalled since March. The economic accounts, the openings, the hires, the quits, and then you also raise a couple more. Consumer credit, revolving consumer credit, U.S. consumer confidence. June in Germany, May. So we're seeing something happen around that time period, and you offer a few ideas why that might be. You don't mention any virus in here Jeff so I'll mention that's a possibility maybe it was the the virus that did this you offer some other possibilities why this may have started and the first one is the helicopter payments that they what they diffused, they ran out of steam they did what they did but they weren't continuous that's why I always complain about these uh the politicians they want to provide a stimulus great but that hasn't worked for 14 years Why don't they try something new and provide a stimulus every single month? That might work. I know we're getting off track, but the
1: point is. (laughs) Don't give them any ideas because I think that's what they want
0: to do. Do they? I really don't think they do. I don't think they're taking it seriously. If they wanted to do it, they would do it. I was looking at Franklin Roosevelt's uh, first hundred days in office and he had, I don't know, I think he passed 70 new laws. He had 90 executive orders. And you look at everyone else since then and it doesn't compare. It doesn't compare. No, to the scene, and I think it, that know. was like, you know, I'm going for it. Something's desperately wrong. And I maybe I didn't do it right, but I'm doing. Yes, that's something. It right
1: there. That's it. The, the fact that during the obviously during Roosevelt's first hundred days, everybody knew that we we're stuck in the worst depression in American history. You know, there was no inhibition, mm. nor should there have been. You know, nowadays it's OK. Yeah, we knew the coronavirus recession was going to be bad, but it seems like we got out of it. And not only that. You hear all of these economists and central bankers and everybody around the world, the financial media saying, oh, my God, we've overdone it. We've done too much. So we can't do any more. This is look at the inflation. The mainstream narrative has wrongly identified inflation as the primary cause between behind consumer prices rising. As we know, that's not really what's going on. It's mostly about supply and demand imbalances. But as far as politicians are concerned, they're going to listen to economists. They're going to listen to people in the financial media we're telling them, "Oh my god, you've done too much here. The economy's too good. You can't do any more." You know, the real fact of the matter is just breaking it down into, into specific cases, what you just said. The stipends, the transfer payments, they were all front-loaded to the beginning of the year. So you had heavy government influence, fiscal influence, you know, late December, January, that was the second helicopter, and then again March and April. That was the third and the biggest one. But ever since then, you've had, you know, stipends in the form of unemployment benefits, pandemic relief and things like that. But those have been petering out too. So the level of involvement of Uncle Sam in the economy sort of peaked around April. And ever since April, it's been less and less and less. So yes, there's going to be some lingering effects to some, some people who didn't immediately spend their stimulus stipends and have been waiting to do so. But by and large. Starting from that perspective, what we, what we would expect is that, yeah, there would be a frenzy of activity closely associated in time and calendar with the fiscal interventions, and then it would have less and less of an impact over time to the point where it might actually have a negative impact if people went too far during that initial frenzy period. Contrary to econometric models, which think that there's a positive multiplier here, and if the government spends, that leads to other spending and other spending and other spending in a continuous virtuous circle, that never happened. And so and realistically, we'd expect that there would be a slowdown at the very least from the frenetic pace that had been set by Uncle Sam earlier in the year. So the fact that there's a slowdown in the second half of the year really shouldn't be surprising. But yet it is because, you know, the mainstream narrative is set by econometric models.
0: Another issue that you raised that possibly set things off on the wrong foot in June was uh, oil, gasoline, energy prices. And you remind yeah, the us that
1: quote unquote inflation itself, yeah, right?
0: Don't be careful I mean, what you wish for. Inflation yeah, exactly. creating central bankers. You got the inflation and but it was in energy prices. Yeah.
1: Yeah. This is something that you and I talked about with Bilal Hafiz a couple of weeks back, where he said, you know, he pointed out historically speaking, you get an oil price shock, you expect a recession, <laughs> not too much longer thereafter, because those two things correlate. You know, when oil prices go up. As long as it's not because of inflation, we don't expect that to go up, to continue to go up. We don't expect that the economy is going to easily absorb the oil price shock because there isn't the money flowing behind it that will allow it to continue to go up. And essentially what you're doing is the energy sector robs a lot of vitality and activity from other parts of the economy that then these other parts of the economy, which suffer the consequence of essentially the fact that we need energy for everything, and if we have to pay for energy, we can't pay for other things, then overall, given enough time, you would expect the economy to start to slow down to the point where it becomes into, you know, a realistic recessionary danger. In fact, historically speaking, that's the the two actually go together pretty well. They have an oil price shock and a recession not long thereafter. So, you know, oil prices and gasoline prices They aren't really that much higher than they were three years ago, but the rate of change has been incredibly big. So the acceleration has been sufficient enough that we would expect some sort of deflationary growth slowdown backlash just from gasoline and energy prices alone. And then, of course, speaking outside the United States, Europe in particular, where the prices of things like natural gas have just exploded upward, it becomes an even bigger deflationary slowdown issue because now energy prices in you know, things like heating, basic living necessities have gone through the roof even further than gasoline. So slow down from from an oil price shock. Those two things usually do go together.
0: So to summarize, there are some good uh, measures in the United States employment situation, but there are more measures that suggest some sort of stalling in since the summer. Jeff, help me segue to some other topic. That's the end of this episode. Is there anything say? Yeah, me? so
1: I think the segue or at least the takeaway should be that, you know, what we were expected at the beginning of the year, including in the bond market and fixed income and global credit markets, was reflation continuing. We're good times. The, the end of the pandemic was in sight, tremendous fiscal stimulus that was going to create a real recovery, virtuous circle. And then we get to February, March, and then the global bond market started to say, no. And as we pointed out in the as you pointed out very well in the last segment, it's not that interest rates have fallen all that much since March. It's the fact that they haven't continued to rise. That yield curves and other curves haven't continued to steepen for now, going on nine months. The curves have been at least sideways to somewhat flatter, which belies the fact that you know, hey, this was supposed to be a very good year from beginning to end. And in fact, when we take when we look back at this year. It really had, you know, maybe January, February, but that was it. Ever since then, we get into March forward, it's been growing concerns, growing problems, not economic growth, and certainly not inflationary growth. There's been, you know, as we said before, escalating series of warnings in these credit markets that we're seeing being borne out by the economic data, not just in the U.S. labor market, nor just the U.S. economy, but all over the world. Where especially since around mid-year, at the very least, the economy has slowed way down and maybe potentially more than that, as we see, you know, yield curves and euro dollar futures curves and other things are warning that next year begins under this cloud of suspicion, which means we don't know as necessarily what it actually means, but it, it probably doesn't mean picking back up where we left off in March and April. How
0: is the global economy doing? That depends on your perspective. So writes Gillian Tet of the Financial Times, and we just had a perfect example of the economic situation in the U.S. labor market. Great news over here, but also bad news over here. How do we reconcile the two? Well, I'm going to read this column out to Jeff, get his perspective, get his live reaction, and then maybe we'll settle on some methodology, some way to settle conflicting signals in part three of this episode. How's the economy doing that depends on your perspective so writes Jillian Ted of the Financial Times just this week and Jeff we're gonna talk about Jeff Snyder the head of global research of a partners Jeff I'm gonna read this out to you because she writes that she explains why we need a new view to supplement more traditional models so I'd just be interested in your perspective on some of these items that she raises here okay so The current state of the U.S. economy is sparking much head-scratching. Some data seems to be cheering. Great. Spending on durable goods, for example, rose 1.3% in October, twice the expected level. And of course, Jeff, you jump in whenever you want to. And Deloitte projects that total consumption and expenditure will have risen by a whopping 8.1% in 2021 after shrinking in 2020. That is partly a catch-up effect after the pandemic lockdowns, but consumers have benefited from stimulus checks, a booming stock market, and an apparent abundance of jobs. Indeed, there are currently 1.4 vacancies per unemployed person in America, historic high, and a record 4.4 million Americans voluntarily left their jobs in September. We just talked about this in part two. It sounds great.
1: Yep, job openings, record high, labor shortage, all that stuff. I don't know why she threw in the stock market, but why not? I mean, people talk about it as if it's a, that the stock market actually discounts reality when we know that it doesn't. So sure, record high stock prices, wealth effect, all of the theoretical economic models seem to say job openings are right. The economy is not just robust, it's incredibly robust. Almost too robust. It's a daring gamble. Well, that's, yeah. Extraordinary. Too much. We've gone too far. Yes. It's inflationary now.
0: Okay, so here we go. Part two. But on the other hand, yet other data are far less festive. If jobs seem plentiful, wage growth is still relatively subdued by historical standards. And though American shoppers are spending, their mood seems peculiarly glum. In November, the Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index a monthly survey that gathers information on consumer expectations regarding the overall U.S. economy was running at sixty-seven point four, a ten-year low, and some yes, t-
1: lower than twenty twenty. Let's stop here for a second mm. because yes, consumers, as she pointed out, they've been buying goods by at a historic rate. There's no question that consumers have been shopping on Amazon, whether that was the pandemic or now just because they're spending money that Uncle Sam gave them. Whatever the case. They are buying goods at an incredible rate. However, they are not consuming or purchasing services at even the level that they had before the pandemic. So overall, consumer spending is not in any way, shape, or form like it is from specifically durable goods or even just the goods economy overall. The consumer, spending, consumer spending, including services, is actually well behind where it quote unquote should be. If we hadn't run into the COVID virus and the unnecessary reaction to it and the recession in 2020 and the lack of recovery since then. So on the one hand, the goods economy looks like it's robust, inflationary, all that. But on the other hand, when you look at the lot wider context of the U.S. economy, you start to think, yeah, well, we bought goods because we're not buying services. So we're not actually adding more or doing more. We're just doing more of one thing and less of another. And that creates all sorts of incredible problems, too. Logistical. Logistical. So, shipping yeah transportation I mean, where, where does these supply shocks and everything coming from we, we basically rewrote consumer behavior in the space of 18 months so that's going to be an issue
0: so consumption of goods it is not only back where it had left off right before the coronavirus it's now above the trend the medium to long-term trend right But if we look at it at services, you said it's not back to where it should be. Meaning, have we recovered back to whatever the 2020 high is, but we're still way off? Okay, so we're not not even back to that. We haven't even
1: recovered to 2019, the fourth quarter of 2019 levels, let alone where the, the trend had been before the interruption in 2020. So we're not even back to even yet. And here we are almost two years later. So that's spending on goods way up. Spending on services way down, balancing it out, we're behind. She continues to just inform us regarding the Consumer Survey,
0: the Michigan one, that it's, as you said, 12.4 percentage points gloomier than in November 20, near the height of the pandemic. Jeff, I recently saw and I sent you this study where they use the Michigan Consumer Survey and the Conference Board Consumer Survey as a predictor of recessions. Uh, where we know that the U.S. bond market is really, really good at predicting these recessions whenever it inverts. Well, this recent study found that, yes, if you look at it this way and if you squint your eyes, yes, U.S. consumer sentiment with these two surveys is a predictor of recessions, and they're saying, hey, right now we're at that level. We are at that level predicting a recession. Jeff, you jump in and tell Not the audience that,
1: that- as we we talk- as we talked about in the last segment, it's really consumer confidence in the University of Michigan survey, as well as to a lesser extent in the conference board survey. Where did those peak and where do they start to reverse? June
0: yeah.
1: It's consistent timing across the board. So we've seen labor market cool down in some of the indications, including the headline establishment survey. We've seen consumer confidence sink over the last you know, five or six months of the second half of 2021. And it's not just in, in terms of at least the University of Michigan's numbers. It's not just that consumers have gotten a little bit glummy. The consumer confidence has simply collapsed. And again, as you pointed out, it's worse than it was not just in November 2020. It's worse than it was at the bottom of the recession in March and April of 2020. So something is not right here. Consumers are glum. Yet all we hear about in the media is how the, the economy is awesome. Everything's good. Jobs are plentiful. In fact, jobs are overabundant employers can't hire. But yeah, as you also pointed out, wage growth is nothing really to, you know, is it really that good? Are we really seeing wages rise? Certainly not rise at the rate we would expect if there actually was a labor shortage, because as we always say on the show, there is no such thing as a labor shortage. There is only businesses who are, for some reason, refusing to pay the market clearing wage, because if businesses paid what labor wanted there would be no labor shortage. So if businesses aren't paying the rate that labor wants, then it must be something else. And usually over the last 15 years in particular, that has meant the economy isn't as good as everybody says it is, and the businesses can't pay the market-clearing weight for wages because of macroeconomic reasons. So we're starting to get the feeling again here, just from this article and the way it's being set up, that it's you know very much like 2018 or 2014, The economy seems like it's doing well, according to these certain statistics, but everything else kind of makes it sound like those statistics are looking at something else differently. Maybe they're just not appropriate for these times. That idea of a
0: labor shortage not really being out there if the market clearing wage was paid is starting to filter out into the wider audience, Jeff. This is totally anecdotal. I never heard anyone else say what you said for years that there is no labor shortage, that if you paid a market-clearing wage, everyone would be perfectly happy and satisfied and hired. Recently on Twitter, I have been seeing people that are completely unrelated to you, academics, saying, no, no, there's no labor shortage. You just don't want to pay more. And of course, you know, we can go from there as to whether or not that's because businessmen and women are greedy and terrible and awful or because they don't see a profit in the future and they can't take that risk on which we've talked That's about but it, it's, right
1: absolutely yeah. it's, it''s it's a projection of the future it's because in an actually booming economy, what would happen is businesses would say business is so good now and it's going to be so good in the future, I don't care what I have to pay for labor. I got to get people in here because things are really booming and maybe if things are booming right now, but if you're not confident that boom is going to last, you're still gonna be reluctant and hesitant to bring people on because once you bring people on, it gets to be sticky, it gets to be a problem. You can't just let them go and maybe you have to raise wages and then you have to raise wages across the board. It becomes an issue where bringing people on, you gotta be relatively sure, not just about today, but also next year and the year after. You gotta think that the economy is legitimately booming before I really pay what the market seems to want for work. And if you're reluctant to do so, It's not because there's a labor shortage. It's because of there's an economy shortage.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, that message is filtering out there, Jeff. I'm seeing it more and more. Back to Miss Tet. I suspect there is a psychological issue, too. One reason inflation sparks such gloom is that price hikes have been so unknown in recent decades that a generation of consumers does not know how to parse the current outlook. The devil.
1: No, no, I'm Sorry, we've seen this before, and we're not children. You know, anytime a writer feels the need to treat their audience like children, oh, you—we're not used to inflation, therefore people don't know how to handle it, so they're extra gloomy. No, we saw this. You know, 2011, we saw it to some extent in 2018, just three years ago, hmm. when oil prices and gasoline prices were almost as high as they are now, and you didn't see this kind of hand wringing and pearl clutching back then because. That, you know, there was no reason for it. So I, you know, if you're, if you're if she's trying to say that, you know, the reason people are gloomy is because they don't know how to handle consumer price increases. No, I'm sorry, I don't buy that one at all, especially since consumer price increases have happened. They just haven't stuck around. That's why we've had this disinflationary environment. It's not that the consumer prices have been flat continuously for a dozen years. They've been overall not so not rising in a consistent rate they've been more lumpy and and grouped together like 2008 Mm -hmm. or 2011 or to a smaller extent in 2018 it's that the fact that the consumer prices accelerate and then they fall back which is kind of what we're looking at here so maybe uh, consumers are glum because unlike some people economists in particular and people in the media they realize what's coming next might not be 1975.
0: The downbeat mood reflects disorientation as much as tangible pain. Moving on, so even if they are happy to spend money right now or to walk away from the jobs they dislike, they feel scared about an uncertain future. This possible psychological explanation is, however, just a hunch. We do not have much data on how consumer time horizons may have shifted in a wider sense, And this brings us to another important point. Economists and policymakers need to upgrade their systems for tracking the economy right now to blend quantitative and qualitative perspectives.
1: Yeah, and I think that's that's a huge problem. And she's missing the point here because I think she's got it, Mm. which is that consumers, unlike economists and media personalities, understand the last 15 years. That every time they're told to expect inflation and economic acceleration, we end up with a false dawn. So, you know, it's once bitten, twice shy for consumers where it isn't for everybody else. So, consumers might be glum because they realize on a a very personal, intuitive level, we've seen this before. Every time you say the economy is about to take off, it never does. And so we grow pessimistic because you said it was going to take off in 2021, but this year hasn't really worked out the way everybody said it was going to. We're starting to grow pessimistic, not because of inflation, but because we've seen how this movie ends. We know what's coming. It's not an, ex- it's not an acceleration. It's not inflation. We go back into a moribund, disinflationary or deflationary economy around parts of the world. So maybe consumers are actually smarter <laughs> and more attuned than we give them credit for. And that the reason they're, retur- they're becoming glum is because they know what's coming. They know what's happening like the bond market. They can see, yes, stock prices are through the roof and consumer prices have accelerated, but that doesn't mean what comes next is inflation or growth. It likely means the opposite. Consumers might actually, you know, like workers, we've talked about this before, right? Workers that are not flooding back into the labor markets. They're staying outside of the labor force because they know on a very personal intuitive level, the labor market is not robust. It's not worth their time even looking for a job because they know there's no jobs available at wages they want, they want or need to be paid. So workers are not going back into the labor market, which tells us something about the labor market. Consumers are glum. Maybe they're spending on goods, but they're not spending on services. So maybe they're telling us as well something about also the labor market, as well as the macro, macro case in general. And she's right. Economists and policymakers need to get with it because they've been ignoring these signals, not just ignoring them, arrogantly dismissing these signals for far too long because they're in some ivory tower with some highly credentialed, well-paid job, and you're just some stupid consumer who uh, doesn't even know how to react to a, a small increase in the consumer prices. Well, Jeff, you've solved the riddle that she's gonna pose.
0: <laughs> you, what well, you just said thats it was all right there. We could stop the show, I'll continue. But yes, essentially, Listen to consumers. Listen to the bond market. You yeah, mentioned see, the bond market. It's, it's Just-
1: listen to consumers when it's inconvenient to you. So that's really the problem. Is you know this they'll listen to consumers as long as consumers express their fear of inflation. Right. If, if consumers were saying we're afraid of inflation breaking out, then policymakers, yes, we need to listen to consumers. But as soon as consumers would grow pessimistic about macro factors and think, oh, the economy is not going to be very good at all, regarding setting aside consumer prices, and inflation. If consumers express doubts about monetary policy working, what are monetary policymakers going to do? They're going to immediately say, oh, you're a bunch of stupid ass consumers. We don't need to listen to you. That's what needs to happen. You need to listen to all of these data points when they're inconvenient, when they're most inconvenient to your narrative and your assumptions. Economists and
0: policymakers need to upgrade their systems for tracking the economy right now. Typically, economists try to project the future by collecting reams of data on the recent past, looking for correlations and then extrapolating forward. However, if consumer behavior is in flux, the past must not be a good guide for the future. At such moments, we need a worm's eye view to supplement any bird's eye model. Let's stop
1: right here because that's not the problem and that's not what economists do. As we both well know this, Emil, economists don't look at the past and extrapolate the future. They look at the past and say, What can we do to change it so that the future becomes what we want it to become? And I'm thinking specifically about monetary policy stimulus. So what happens is monetary policymakers in particular look at the past and say, this is not good. We're going to do QE. We assume QE works because we believe in this, this stuff, sort of like, you know, some kind of voodoo or astrology. Our econometric models look at the past and they don't extrapolate into the future from the past they extrapolate in the future from the QE. And so they say, we did a QE, it's going to work because we believe it's going to work, and then it doesn't work. And consumers have told us the whole time it wasn't working, but we ignored those consumers. We ignored the labor market, except for the unemployment rate, which is poisoned and spoiled by the lack of participation. But we've set that aside too. We've said Americans are lazy, they're drug addicted and won't go back to school. We've come up with all sorts of reasons to dismiss these signals because we've extrapolated, not from the past, but from the QE. So econometric models immediately believe that QE works, therefore the future should look very good. And when it never does look good, never does become good, they're all confused about why that is, even though they've dismissed all of these very good signals that have told them your assumptions about QE and just stimulus in general are all wrong. And this includes fiscal stimulus. You know, same thing. Economists extrapolate from a fiscal stimulus and say, oh, yes, the past was bad, but we did fiscal stimulus so the future will be good. And as the future develops, consumers don't don't respond to it. The labor market doesn't respond to it. And economists still dismiss those signals anyway because they're extrapolating from their assumptions that stimulus will actually stimulate. What really needs to happen going forward is policymakers need to go back to the drawing board, Hmm. go back to square one and challenge their assumptions on this Quote unquote stimulus nonsense from the very start. And then doing that, they'll be able to then correspond and correlate all the data and signals that we get in real time from the bond market, from the labor market, from consumers, which will tell them you guys were wrong about stimulus all the time. I love the passion, Jeff. Take five minutes, get a drink <laughs> of water, walk
0: around. <laughs> The audience will wait. We'll no, just go dead air No, for you know, five. It
1: does. It gets me really riled up. Number one, I get really frustrated because this has been going on for how many years now? And we really shouldn't be having this discussion. If economics was anything like a scientific endeavor, this would have been solved a long time ago. Because science is you make observations, you, you make predictions, you make theories, and then you observe whether or not those theories are valid. And if they're not valid, you don't make excuses for them. And that's what really, part of my language, pisses me off is that economists have been not just making excuses for QE's failures. They're blaming you and me and Americans and workers around the world for their failures. They're saying that Americans are lazy and won't go back to work because QE didn't seem to produce the results that were predicted. Bull, that's not what happened. QE didn't work, and Americans have been suffering the consequences, not just Americans, but workers all over the world. As John Maynard Keynes had said over a century ago, deflation impacts the workforce, first and foremost, not only have Americans and workers in general suffered the consequences of monetary policymakers who don't know money, and don't know their jobs, we're still pouring salt into the wound. Economists then and central bankers had then been blaming these very Americans and these very workers around the world who've been suffering for their incompetence for why they are incompetent. It's just, it's beyond frustrating, it's maddening. Some
0: institutions are trying to do this to uh, come up with a new model. The Bank of England, for example, <laughs> is using ethnographers to get on-the-ground evidence about economic conditions. Separately, some economists are widening the data sources they use. Albert Cavallo, a Harvard economics professor, has recently, <laughs> has recently used online real-time price data to track inflation in a manner that is far more timely and accurate than official consumer price indices. But far more could and should be done. The more that different data signals seem to send conflicting messages, the more important it becomes to combine those bird's eyes and worm's eye views. Rarely has the state of the economy been so fascinating, but so hard to read. The end.
1: No, it's only hard to read if you're steeped in the central bank culture. If you start from the premise that central banks are central banks and they're all powerful, then all of a sudden all this stuff becomes hard to read because you expected central banks to be very efficient and to be very successful. And it's very clear that they haven't been. And so even the fact that this article has been written, even the even the subject of the article where central bankers are questioning their own assumption is in one sense a good sign because they realize Hey, we've we maybe we did screw up here. Maybe we didn't deliver on all the promises that we made. And that's that's a good thing. But yet they still can't break free from the, the these assumptions that these are central banks that monetary policy does work or fiscal policy does stimulate when maybe those things don't happen at all and maybe we should listen rather than tell everyone what to think. We should listen to what everybody else is saying, what people on the ground have been saying all along about the way things actually are. And the way things actually are, are nowhere near the way they should be if all of these basic assumptions about QE and fiscal stimulus were anywhere close to accurate. So and in a scientific endeavor, we shouldn't even be having this conversation because all of these things have been disproven so thoroughly. I mean, QE, QE is the most empirically established and tested policy program maybe in history, going back 20 years to Japan, and yet- to this day, people still call it money printing. The media articles still say it pours trillions of dollars into every economy when none of those things are true. So we have a good while to go <laughs> before we actually get to realizing just why all of these things have failed. And it isn't going to help us at all if we let central bankers dictate the pace of change as well as the direction of change. Oh, we need to measure, uh, we need to measure inflation a little more accurately. No, no. You need to go out, get, go back to the drawing board of your Harvard Ivy League mathematics statistical education, not economic education, and start challenging your basic assumptions about what it is you actually know and think. Then we'll start to get to make some progress. This is not about fine tuning anymore. This is about starting from scratch.
0: My complaint is I'm all for development of new models. Fantastic. I've heard of some fantastic work with satellites and counting cars at parking lots. Great. Uh, but my complaint is you don't need the new models. The consumer behavior surveys have been predictive of recessions yes. in the U.S. The bond market has been predictive of recessions in the U.S. So you've got the methodology. I'm just restating you just what need you to said, listen but- to it,
1: right? I mean, that's exactly We've got the data in front of us. You just have ignored it all this time. You've dismissed it. You've created excuses for why we don't. The bond market's rigged. You know, we can't listen to the yield curve because the Fed's buying mean, all this crap. You're, exact, you're exactly right. We've, we have the data. What we lack is the uh, the ability or even the uh, emotional maturity to accept the conclusions that have been in front of us the whole time.
0: Jeff, uh, I don't want to bring up another sour note, but last we talked, <laughs> the bills of Buffalo hosted the Patriots of Boston. All
1: let right, right, we're going to end the show here.
0: <laughs> it was a wonderful, wonderful game. I love that windstorm. And the good news is there's a rematch, so the Bills will have a chance to get revenge.
1: I'm going to ignore the last 30 <laughs> seconds and everything that you just said and pretend that none of that happened. I'm going to be like an economist and stick to my old model in which the Bills were actually a good football team.
0: Editor, please cut out the last 55 seconds. I'll talk to you next week, Jeff.
1: All right, take care, Emil.